If you please turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus, we are continuing our sermon series uh, through the book of Leviticus, and today we find ourselves uh, in Leviticus 4, verses 21, through the remainder of the chapter, uh, verse 35, verse 21 uh, through, um, excuse me, verse 22 through 35, verse 22 uh, through 35. Uh, please now give attention to the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant, and life-giving word. When a leader sins, doing unintentionally any one of all the things that by the commandments of the Lord his God ought not to be done and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known, is made known to him, he shall bring as his offering a goat, a male without blemish, and shall lay his hand on the head of the goat and kill it in the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out the rest of its blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering. And all its fat he shall burn on the altar, like the fat of the sacrifice of peace offerings. So the priest shall make atonement for him, for his sin, and he shall be forgiven. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish, for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all of its fat he shall remove as the fat is removed from the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. If he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish, and lay his hand on the head of the sin offering, and kill it for a sin offering in the place where they kill the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering, with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar and all its fat he shall remove as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings and the priest shall burn it on the altar on the top of the Lord's food offerings and the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed and he shall be forgiven." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Will you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? O Lord, our God, we know that we have no hope of grasping any of this, lest you come by your Holy Spirit and give us eyes and ears to both see and to hear. And so we pray, O Father, that you would come and pour out your Spirit upon us, your people, 
that we would rightly discern your word, that we would rightly divide your word of truth, and that you would write your word upon our hearts and change us uh, from one degree of glory to another, that you would conform us even now as we sit under your word proclaimed, that you would conform us into the image of your Son, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, today we continue our little mini three-part sermon series uh, on the sin offering, which is covered in chapter 4 and chapter 5. Uh, last week we looked at chapter 4, verses 1 through 21, which was really part one of our sort of mini three-part sermon series within the larger sermon series of Leviticus, where we uh, saw the priest offer a sin offering uh, for either his own sin uh, or the sins of the congregation uh, that he represented. Uh, today, in verse 22 through 35, uh, we see the details of the sin offering whenever a leader uh, within Israel sins or when the common people sin. Uh, now, last week, we focused our attention on the reality of sin. Uh, today, I want us to focus our attention on the fight against sin. The Christian life is a fight against sin. J.C. Ryle says this, The true Christian is called to be a soldier and must behave as such from the day of his conversion to the day of his death. If the Bible is the rule of his faith and practice, he will find his course laid down very plainly in this matter. He must fight. He must fight. When we become believers in Jesus Christ, we are called to a battle. And one of the primary battles the Lord calls us to when he calls us to his son is the battle against, as Paul will call it, the flesh. The battle against the flesh. The battle against our sin, or as the Puritans like to call it, our indwelling sin. Our battle against sin. And so what I want us to see here with the details involved in the sin offering this morning is how it teaches us on how we are to fight that very crucial battle that, the, that our Lord and Savior calls us to. How the details here in the sin offering teaches us how we are to fight against sin. And I want us to see three things the fight against sin involves. First, it involves the pain of sin. Second, it involves the ownership of sin. And third, it involves the certainty of God. The pain of sin, the ownership of sin, and the certainty of God. So first, the pain of sin. We mentioned last week at when we were looking at the idea of unintentional sins uh, that uh, the problem is not our knowledge of our sins, uh, but sin itself. Uh, I gave the example last week of someone with cancer. Whether someone knows they have cancer or not, that cancer is eating away at them. Uh, it's not them having knowledge of the cancer that makes the cancer the problem. The cancer is the problem. 
And so also it is with sin. Whether we are aware of sin or not, sin is the problem. It is eating away at, away at us. Uh, but recognizing the cancer, we must admit, is an important first step in ridding oneself of cancer. And so it is with the cancer of sin. Uh, the important first step in the fight against sin is the recognition of it. And we see this in verse 22 and 23 uh, when it concerns the leader in Israel and verse 27 and 28 with the common people. And there it says, when anyone realizes their guilt or the sin they have committed is made known to them, they shall bring their offering. Now this idea of this phrase of realizing their guilt carries with it the idea of suffering the consequences of their sin, feeling the pain of one's sin in their life. Now, as many of you know, this can come in many ways and in many forms, this pain, these, these consequences of sin in our lives, broken relationships, guilty consciences before the Lord, and really altogether bad circumstances in life brought on by sin that will bring pain to the sinner and cause recognition of sin. It's true, isn't it? Oftentimes somebody will go to the doctor and realize and get diagnosed with some life-debilitating disease because there's some foreign pain that takes place in their body that will cause them to go to the doctor. And so it is for us with sin. There will be sin that will cause some sort of pain in our life. And that pain can come in a variety of ways, broken relationships, guilty consciences, altogether bad circumstances. And that is the, the primary step, first step in recognizing our sin and dealing with it. In other words, pain is a good thing in the fight against sin. Pain is a gracious gift of God in our fight against sin, in helping us take that first and important step in our fight against sin. A certain missionary surgeon by the name of Dr. Paul Brand headed the rehabilitation branch of America's only leprosarium. A leprosarium is basically a hospital for those who have leprosy. And doctors once believed that the disease of leprosy was what caused the ulcers on hands and feet and on the face, which would eventually lead to the rotting of flesh and the gradual loss of limbs. However, through Dr. Brand's research, it was discovered that 99% of the cases, leprosy only numbs the extremities. The decay of flesh occurs solely because the warning system of pain is gone. The decay of flesh occurs solely because the warning system of pain is absent. 
And this discovery caused Dr. Brand to say, if I had one gift to give to people with leprosy, it would be the gift of pain. Thank God for pain. Does your sin hurt you today? Does your sin sting? Thank God for pain. John Owen writes, he who finds no opposition from sin is at peace with it, not dying to it. We might paraphrase John Owen and say, he who finds no pain with sin is at peace with it and not dying to it. In our fight against sin, pain is a gracious gift that God gives to us. It is that necessary primary first step in recognizing our sin and fighting against it. Second, the ownership of sin. The ownership of sin. Uh, We see that after either the leader or the common people recognize their sin, they are to take ownership of their sin by taking one of their own animals and sacrificing it. Now, just a brief note on the leader here. Uh, This most likely would have been a leader within one of the tribes of Israel. Uh, Tribal leaders were extremely important uh, within Israel up until the time of the monarchy, uh, which begins with the coronation of Saul. Uh, Once the king is established in Israel, Uh, the idea of tribal leadership sort of slowly evaporates. Uh, But within this time, within Israel's uh, history, uh, tribal leadership is extremely uh, important. Uh, Now, the details concerning the sin offering from the leader and the common people are very similar to the details that we read of last week in verse 1 through 21 uh, with the priest. However, there are some distinct differences, I think, which show us what it means to own our sin. First, we see the difference in the animal that is offered. We see the difference in the animal that is offered. Uh, The priest would offer a bull for his sin or the sins of the congregation which he represented. Uh, The leader offers a male goat, while the common people would offer a female goat. And really what you have here is an economic value ladder that correlates to the importance of the individual in relation to God within Israel. The priest who has really the most important role, the most important religious role as the representative of God's people before Yahweh, as the caretaker of the tabernacle, would offer the most important animal within Israel, the bull, when he sins. Uh, The leader within uh, the tribes of Israel, as we have already said, were extremely important, not only in keeping law and order, but also in many ways, religious order. They would offer a male goat. And then the common people would offer, offer a female goat, which was the most abundant animal within Israel, and therefore the, the, the least economically uh, valuable. So you really have here with the bull, the male goat, and, and the female goat, an economic uh, value ladder uh, correlating uh, to the 
a religious importance of the sinner who is offering the sin offering. Uh, Second, we see the difference in where the blood is applied, uh, where the blood is thrown. Uh, With the priest, the blood is thrown before the veil, uh, before the veil that separated the Holy of Holies and the holy place. However, with the leader within Israel or the common people, the blood was thrown uh, before the altar of burnt offering, which was outside within the courtyard. And really the idea here is that the sacrifice is only going as far as the sinner himself was able to go. The sacrifice was going only so far as the sinner themselves was able to go. The priest was able to go into the holy place, up to the veil that separated the holy of holies from the holy place. Therefore, his sin affects the place within the tabernacle that he is able to go to. So the blood goes and extends as far as he is able to go. And the leader within Israel and the common people were only to go into the courtyard as far as the altar of burnt offering. And so the blood extends only as far as uh, the leader or the common people uh, can go. And the idea that it is giving off to the people is that the relationship that God has established for that particular sinner has been affected and only for that particular sinner. The relationship that God has established for that particular sinner has been affected. It signals that the sinner is to own up to their personal transgressions that have soiled their relationship with their God. Does the sinner owning up to their personal bond with God, being soiled, however deep that relationship is, however far up the religious food chain they go, they are to take ownership of their sin and its effect on the place within God's dwelling place that they personally touch. Let me ask you today, brothers and sisters, where are you today in your walk with the Lord? Are you a mature Christian? Are you feeding on on solid food, as the writer to Hebrews and Paul says? Are you you getting into the deep things of of Scripture and and, and thirsting for the deeper things of, of, of Scripture and the doctrines of God's Word? Or perhaps you find yourself here today as, as a baby Christian. You're still feeding on, on milk and, and feeding on the basics of the gospel. And, and you're struggling to understand the, the deep things of God's Word. Or perhaps you find yourself somewhere in between. Wherever you find yourself today, you are to own your sin. You are to own your sin. Not anyone else's sin. You're not to offer a bull if what you need to offer is a female goat. But you are to own your sin. You are to own your relationship with the Lord. As Jesus says to Peter, who cares so much about John's relationship with Jesus, 
if it is my will that he remain until I come. What is that to you? You follow me. You care about your relationship with me. I am convinced that one of the biggest obstacles to growth in the Christian life is trying to live out someone else's relationship with God rather than our own. And what will inevitably happen when we try to live out someone else's relationship with God is we will start to not own up to our sin because our eyes aren't on God in the place where he has us because our eyes are on someone else in the place where he has them. And so what we end up doing is owning up to the sin of not being like our neighbor, of not being like him, whoever him or her is, rather than owning up to the sin that is truly soiling the relationship that God has personally established with us. Think of how many times you see David and the psalmist use that personal possessive pronoun, my God. Paul says, my God. We so often don't see the sin that is deep, the sin that is unique to us and our relationship with God and not our neighbor. And so that sin that is unique to us goes unchecked and unhandled. And that battle against sin seems hopeless because our eyes are on our neighbor and someone else and not on our God and on our Christ. What is it to you what I do with them? You follow me. You worry about your relationship with God. Don't look at anyone else, whether they're more mature than you, and you wonder, oh man, I wish I could be as mature as they are. Lord, why aren't I like this person? Or perhaps you say when you feel guilty, at least I'm not like him. It's stunting your growth in the Christian life. It's stunting you from saying, my God. What is it to you what God does to your neighbor, either to your left or to your right? You follow me. Third and finally, the fight against sin involves the certainty of God. It involves the certainty of God. Within the ancient Near Eastern religions that surrounded Israel, oftentimes the people would suffer some sort of natural calamity, and they would go out searching for something that might have offended the gods that they worshipped and served. And so what they would do is they would they would come up with this complicated system of divination to try and discern what it was that they possibly could have done that upset their many gods in order to, to find out how they might assuage this god and get rid of whatever natural calamity is, 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 is affecting them. And there was this sort of guessing game in many of the ancient Near Eastern pagan religions uh, during uh, the time of Israel's history. I want to read to you what one Mesopotamian uh, pagan uh, worshiper is recorded as saying. He says this, I wish I knew what was pleasing to a God. What seems good to oneself could be an offense to a God. 
What is in one's heart seems abominable could be good to one's God. And so such was the case with the ancient Near Eastern pagan religions surrounding Israel. This complicated system of, of divination, trying to figure out why the gods were angry with them. And then when they thought they figured it out, they would then come up with the sacrifice that they thought might assuage the god. But if it didn't work, then they'd have to find some other sacrifice. And if that sacrifice didn't work, then they'd just go down the complicated sacrificial system and sacrifices that they had until they thought that they might have possibly assuaged God. And such was the atmosphere of the pagan religions that surrounded Israel at the time. But do you notice the difference with Israel's God? Notice what verse 22 says. Doing any one of all the things that by the commandments of the Lord his God ought not to be done. There is no guessing with Israel's God. There is no guessing with Israel's God. Unlike with the gods around them, Israel's God is a God who speaks clearly. And he gives what he expects of his people clearly so that there is no uncertainty as to what is expected of them. Have you ever worked under bad leadership in some certain context? Maybe it's uh, a job of yours or uh, whatever it might be. And, and it's bad leadership because there's no direction. And there's no direction and you feel absolutely helpless in your job. And your fellow employees feel absolutely helpless because they have no idea what it is that they're doing. And, and there's a mistake and people are getting yelled at and you start to question yourself, did, did I do that? Was that my fault? And you're genuinely concerned that it might have been your fault because you have no idea what it is that you're supposed to do. And it's this helpless feeling. You go to work because you're so uncertain of what is expected of you. Well, such was the atmosphere of the ancient Near East in the time of Yahweh, in the time of Leviticus. Pagan gods and, and the worshipers of these pagan gods not having any idea of what it was that they were to do and what was expected of them. But Yahweh is like that good leader that comes in and writes the ship, and he gives clear direction. And all of a sudden, there is certainty. You know what is expected of you. There is clear direction. You can, you can go to work, and, and there's just that burden placed off your back because that uncertainty is shed. You know exactly what is expected of you. That's part of the reason why the psalmist in Psalm 119 can sing a love song of, of, of the law in Psalm 119 because God's law is so clear in the midst of an atmosphere where there's so much vagueness. God's law is clear. In our fight against sin, God does not leave us in the dark as to what he expects of us. He's a speaking God that lays out his commandments clearly to us. And when we stray from the path that he lays out for us, and we feel the emptiness and the pain and the guilt that follows, he lays down the path of forgiveness so very clearly. 
He doesn't make us guess or search out on our own. No, he delivers to us the road of pardon clearly. Think of Jesus's clear words. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And at the end of that road to pardon is the certainty and assurance of forgiveness. Notice the refrain at the end of the sacrificial ritual in verse 26, 31, and 35. And he shall be forgiven. And he shall be forgiven. Not he might be forgiven. Not maybe he'll be forgiven. Not if he goes down this path, he has a pretty good shot at being forgiven. No, he shall be forgiven. The end of the road of pain, the end of the road of ownership is the certainty of pardon, the certainty of God's forgiveness. I think part of the difficulty in our fight against sin, I think our fight against sin is so often weakened because we place upon the lips of God the words, come to my son and you might be forgiven. Come to my son and you maybe will be forgiven. You have a good shot if you come to my son. If you come to Jesus Christ, he'll take care of a lot of your sins and you'll have a fighting chance. Brothers and sisters, if that is you today, if that's the words that you are hearing from your Lord, that is not the words of Israel's God. That is the words of the pagan gods of a pagan world. Israel's God gives words of assurance. He gives words of certainty. There is no maybe in the words that come from Yahweh. His words are filled with certainty. And he lays out a hand of forgiveness that reaches out to you, and there is never a maybe involved in it. There is always assurance of pardon. Because within that hand is his son, who has both taken on the pain and ownership of your sin, so that he can say to you, come to me, you who are weighed down by your sin, you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So fight on. J.C. Ryle is right. You must fight your sin if you are a Christian, but we fight with the certainty and the assurance that in Christ we are forgiven. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that in Christ we have the certainty of our forgiveness. And we thank you that you have called us to this fight, to this, to this battle that is so important. And might we fight not with our own weaponry, but with the weaponry that you yourself give to us by your Holy Spirit. Might we never seek to fight this war on our own with our own efforts, but might we always come as humble, helpless servants, seeking you and your strength and your strength alone to help us and to aid us to fight this battle against sin. 
And we thank you, O God, that in Christ Jesus, no matter how far we stumble, no matter how far we stray, that hand that you reach out that has Christ in it is never a hand that has the word maybe involved in it, but it is always a hand of certainty and assurance that we are forgiven, that we are pardoned from our sin so that we can come freely without any money, without anything in our hands, naked come to thee for dress and be fully assured that you clothe us in the righteousness of your son and we are fully pardoned in your sight. We praise you and thank you for this glorious good news. And with it now, help us to leave this place ready to fight our sin, to fight uh, the warfare that you call us into, and to bring glory and honor to you and to your son. It is in his name that we pray and ask all these things. Amen. Would you please stand for our closing?